Lots of people think product design is just about buttons, images, features, and workflow, but there's a whole lot more. Next up, I talk to Superfriendly's Dan Mall about how building a culture of design helps companies build better products. This is Design Driven, the podcast about using design thinking to build great products and lasting companies. Whether you're running a startup or trying something new inside of Fortune 1000, the tools, methods, and insights we talk about will help you create things people love. Design Driven is brought to you by Nine Labs, guiding innovators and product teams through executing their vision. Find out more at NineLabs.com. And now, your host, Jay Cornelius. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Design Driven. I'm super excited to have Dan Mall on the show today. I've known Dan for a number of years and have respected his work ever since I first came across it. Uh, he runs Super Friendly, which is a design collaborative based in Philadelphia. Um, speaks at conferences all over the world. He's got uh, a couple of kids, plays some basketball, just an all-around great guy. So, Dan, uh, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Yeah, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, cool. So uh, what's happening in Philly and, and what are you doing with Super Friendly these days? Uh, it's snowing in Philly today, which is uh, a bit uh, weird because um, it's the first snow of the season, but it's winter. So I guess that's expected. Uh, and in terms of Super Friendly, Super Friendly is going great too. We're working with great clients and um, we often look for clients where we can make an impact, you know, clients that, that could use our help in what we do well, because it's not what they do well. And so got a whole host of clients right now that that's the case for. So that's going well as well. Awesome. So you've been known in the design community for a while um, for creating like your personal website has always been really strong. It's, you know, strong art direction, um, strong copy. You've written a lot about the design process. Can you talk a little bit about your specific approach to design and like how do you if somebody has an idea how do you help them get that idea off the back of a napkin and into the real world yeah oftentimes what i'm looking for is what makes this company different you know and the same applies for my company like if i'm pitching against other agencies I, I should say what I do differently than all of them, because that, that's what's going to help a client decide whether they want to work with us. And so when we're working with clients, we do the same for them and their competitors is to go, how are you different than all the rest of your competitors? And how can we accentuate that thing? Um, so oftentimes what we're looking for is actually the differences between um, between companies. And so a lot of the ways that we do that is, you know, certainly some standard things like competitive audits. Um, but we do a lot of kind of qualitative research and interviewing and talking to people. Uh, a lot of our process starts with just talking to as many people as we can and then trying to kind of uncover this, these nuggets of differentiation. Like they, they often feel like buried treasure. Like sometimes somebody will say something in an interview and that'll be just, just a gold mine of, uh, of insight and of knowledge. And oftentimes what I find with the companies that I have maybe the, my favorite time working with, they think what they do is normal, right? They think that that uniqueness is like, well, I don't know. That's, mm -hmm. Everybody does that, right? Um, but oftentimes, like us coming in as consultants, I think that's probably the value of it is we can spot, we can go, well, no, actually, that's not normal for your industry or for your, you know, your, your revenue amount or whatever the, whatever the circle is that they run in. So oftentimes just looking for what makes them different and then how can we accentuate that difference in a way that provides value to their customers or to their clients. Yeah, that, that's, that's uh, very similar to um, a lot of other processes I've heard um, people using. I'm curious, okay, who, do you, who are you trying to talk to? You say you talk to a lot of people. Are you talking to internal people, stakeholders, external people, customers? 
Yeah, it's usually a mix of certainly stakeholders, right? Because like, what are the what are the important things to the business and to the stakeholders? And then also we're talking to customers. What are the important things to them? And what we're trying to find is kind of the sweet spot in between. You know, what's the Venn diagram of those two? Because oftentimes the business has things that customers don't care about. You know, like we want to, you know, make sure our company culture is moving in the right direction. Well, that's great for the organization, but customers don't really care about that. The customers care about whether or not that company makes a product or, or a service that they can use. And so what we try to find is what's in between those two. And that's the stuff that we tend to focus on first. That, that's the maybe either the low hanging fruit and or the, the largest opportunities are the things that the business wants and that customers want. And then in a roadmap, kind of thinking about, okay, what are the, the stuff on the outsides of that Venn diagram? Those fall a little bit lower in priority usually. Yes. Can you talk about a time when you've gone into a company and um, maybe they've had a product that wasn't quite doing what it needed to do or the customers weren't quite happy with it and you were able like through that process of doing research you were able to uncover something that the company didn't see on their own that you were able to help them uh, get into the real world and and how did that change the the outcome for that company yeah, I've got some, some examples that are close, I think. Um, we worked with a, a hotel casino resort in Vegas last year, and um, we helped them build their first um, online reward system. So they had a reward system that you know, people could earn points by staying and spend it at the, at the hotel or at the casino in the resort. Um, but in order to redeem your points or even find out how many points you had, he had to call the desk. And so that was, it was a manual process and, and no one was happy with that. And they, they knew it, right? they, like they knew that that wasn't a great process. They just hadn't gotten around to, to doing this. And so it was a big effort for them. Um, and it was like, it, it was, um, it was painful for everyone. You know, the, the people at the desk were just inundated with calls. The people who were on the phone trying to redeem their points or even know how many points they had, they were frustrated because there were long call lines. And so one of the things that we helped them do was sort of figure out their, you know, what are the things that customers really wanted? It, it's a big platform. It's a big engine. It's regulated. It's the gaming commission. You know, so there are a lot of moving parts, lots of different vendors, lots of different services. And so what we tried to focus on by first thing we did was we talked to both people that work at the casino. We walked, we talked to everyone from the people running it in the back office to the people on the front lines, the people working the desks and working the phones. Um, we spent time in the casino actually talking to people as they were playing. Um, we talked to, so we talked to lots of customers and lots of stakeholders and we just tried to pick the lowest hanging fruit. We tried to pick the stuff that was the easiest to do. Like, let me check my points. And so rather than trying to build this massive, gigantic system, spend a year or two years building that and designing that and then launching it and crossing our fingers and hoping it went well, we just did it in kind of slow releases. You know, like, let's let people check their points at first. You know, and that, that was the first thing. That's, that's all you can do. But at least if you wanted to, to find out how many points you have, you can go online and see that. If you want to redeem the points, well, that comes later. And so we did it in kind of a phased approach to say, we're just going to release a thing at a time to try to find out what's the most valuable thing to customers, let them do that as immediately as possible, and then kind of build that over time. And what we found is that was actually a great way to build trust with customers because mm -hmm. they could constantly see that platform improving, you know, month after month. Oh, we had this new feature or this new thing, or, oh, we tweaked this because we heard that people don't really understand the way that this actually works. And so that was a, that was a really great process of working with them. Like they were a great client and kind of understanding that process. And despite all of the things that they had on their end, you know, in terms of, well, we have to wire up this service and we have to redo the architecture, like all the stuff that were business priorities that weren't customer priorities, they did a good job of saying, okay, let's do what's right for our customers, you know, even more so than, than what's right for us. Yeah. So it sounds like you're using um, kind of the iterative approach that, you know, that, 
we recommend and that a lot of companies who are seeing success or are following where, you know, you find like, what is the simplest thing that we can release? What is the smallest version of this that gives some success to the client? And then release that, get it into the world, gather some feedback on that, and then start iterating. Absolutely. Right? I, I think the, the more I do this work, the less I feel I have the right answer the first time. So right. what I'm finding is that I can take, if I can, the faster I can make guesses um, and then change those as I learn more things, the better, the better products become. And so what we try to do is we tend to want to like guess really quickly, make educated guesses, but guess really quickly, put it implementation really quickly, test really quickly, and then revise from there as we learn more, more things. It's hard to speculate, you know? And so what, what we used to do, you know, long ago in this industry was like, we'd speculate for months and months and months, you know, and then launch a thing and right. we'd still and be wrong. Big release, right? Yeah. And then we'd yeah. still be wrong right after a year <laughs> or two. And so, <laughs> yeah. well, if we're going to be wrong anyway, let's be wrong in a shorter amount of time. Right. And let's be less wrong. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Because if you launch a small thing, there's just less to be wrong about. You know? Exactly. So, yeah. So we, we, tend to, we tend to favor that kind of approach and, and tend to work with clients that also favor that approach. Yeah. So what are you seeing in terms of um, when you go into a company, like in terms of their overall design operations, what we call design operations is that process of idea to reality. And how does that manifest itself both in, in terms of visuals and in terms of functionality, writing code, pushing pixels, all of those things. Like what does that process look like for in, in your experience with healthy organizations? One of the ways that we tend to start with working with organizations is just understanding who they are and how they work. Um, because some projects are about changing organizational culture and some projects are about navigating the current organizational culture. So one of the things that we tend to do at first is just, let's just understand who they are and, and hopefully them, they understand who we are too and figure out what's a good way to work with them. So even before we you know, write a line of code or we push pixels or anything like that, we're trying to understand, well, what, what does this organization look like and what's the best way to, to put an idea through? Because a lot of this is about changing people's minds, you know, launching a new product. Sometimes people have to get on board with that product in order to support it and in order to, to um, do a good job maintaining that. And so one of the first things we tend to do is just understand who they are. Uh, I was, in, um, I was at a client site last week meeting with a bunch of different teams in a, in a big enterprise organization, and I had them fill out a, a quick questionnaire, um, and I plotted those against, there's a thing called the competing values framework, um, which just kind of shows like, what is the team's natural tendency? Like, do they tend to be like about teamwork or do they tend to be about, you know, achieving results and goals or do they tend to be about, you know, kind of building a family? They, you know, what, what is important to that team? How do they evaluate whether or not they're doing well? And just plotting that on the spectrum after the survey, uh, just and looking at a graph and going, oh, they tend to favor that thing. So here's the way that we might work with that team. That's incredibly liberating for a design team and for a, you know, a development team to work with that. So once we understand that, that's when we tend to start going, all right, what can we make now? And what's the best way to circulate this, knowing that they tend to be, for example, very market driven, you know, or very hierarchical as a, as a, an opposite pole on that spectrum. So you're doing that evaluation on a team level. So looking at how the team holistically responds and what they value as, as a unit, or are you also looking at that at an individual level for each team member? So both of those, as well as a, a third one, which is as an organization as the whole. And what we find is, so we do the, the surveys individually, and then just by overlaying them on top of each other, you start to get this heat map of, oh, they tend to right. be in this quadrant of this graph. And so, you know, one of the things that I'm finding, I was just doing this this morning is, you know, it, it, across the organization, there's a, a good balance of, okay, they exist in all the four quadrants. 
Um, but one team tends to be, oh, they're very in this upper right quadrant. And so they seem to be antithetical to the way that the organization as a whole moves. And that's a good insight in knowing how to work with that team specifically. And then even within that team, oh, there's one person that actually feels really strongly about this, which tends to polarize the team. And so just knowing those dynamics helps us to work with that team and know, okay, when we, when we present something or walk through something or have a conversation about something, you know, this person may, may have strong feelings about that that are opposite to what the rest of the people are feeling and how are we going to deal with that situation. Yeah, so you go into that conversation a little bit more prepared for the way people are going to respond to what you're presenting, right? Absolutely, and, yeah. And it's that's just kind of us. an interesting uh, litmus test of organizational health. So if you've got one unit and they're the maybe the product unit, and they believe something that's almost completely diametrically opposed to the rest of the organization, that's a good indication that okay, we're going to have a problem building anything of value here, right? Because yep. the, the the unit isn't aligned. Exactly. And it tends to explain things like, you know, when we do interviews and we hear things like, well, our, our group is kind of the black sheep of the organization, right? It just mm -hmm. seeing that visualizes like, well, yeah, that makes sense. It makes sense. Why? Because everybody else exists on this other side of, right. of the spectrum. Yeah, because everybody in, in that team are very relational driven and everyone on the other team is very metrics driven. Exactly. You guys aren't speaking the same language. <laughs> exactly. Yep. Yeah. And, and so if we, can't, if we can't understand that, there's no way we're going to launch a, a product that everybody's aligned with. You know, and so helping right. to kind of meld all that stuff together and understand the, the dynamics really helps us to go, all right, well, what's a product that actually does accurately reflect this organization? Right. And that kind of harkens back to something you said earlier about um, aligning customer goals and company goals and seeing kind of what that sweet spot is in the Venn diagram. Because, and you mentioned something about culture, which I found interesting because I think um, companies that have a a healthier culture build better products, right? Totally agree. So it's, it's, it's interesting to think about, you know, as a product designer, um, how much influence do we have over culture and how important is it for, for a company and the teams working within that company to have their culture aligned in order to influence the outcome of the product? Yeah, it's a tough question to answer. I think that as designers and, and product people, I think that we have a lot of influence, but I think it's hard to, to execute that influence, right? Because just going in and saying something doesn't mean that it's going to change. You know, we, we see this sure. in organizations a lot. Sometimes a CEO will mandate something that doesn't yep. change the culture. Even if people do it because they have to, it doesn't change the culture, right? They're still grumbly about it. And so one of the things that we often look for is like, how do we do it in a way that actually has lasting impact? Um, a lot of the work that we're doing, I imagine you're seeing kind of the same thing is a lot of the work we're doing is with big organizations that have multiple products. And so we come in and we help build systems for them, like design systems and, and mm -hmm. libraries and things like that. And, uh, one of the things I was talking to Nathan Curtis, um, who does a lot of design system work at, mm -hmm. at his agency. And, and he was saying that the, the companies that have, um, the best culture of critique are the ones that tend to be the uh, tend to be successful, and I think that there's a lot of truth in that. In that the companies that have a good culture of critique are ones that are used to evaluating ideas on their merit, being able to criticize without being critical of people. You know, being able to criticize ideas, and that that is a healthy culture that exists. And so, right. oftentimes when we see that, that's a good sign. And oftentimes when we don't see that, part of our work tends to be, well, how could we slowly move them toward that? And that tends to exist at the individual level, not at the group or the organization level. So how can we change individuals' minds, especially individuals that have influence and that can rally people, you know, and, and kind of have kind of groundswell of, of that. And that's, what, that's one of the ways that we see culture change being possible. Yeah, so I think we've all probably seen a situation where we go in as a uh, air quote designer, right? 
and we start talking about these kind of bigger things about you know getting culture and you know, good design critique like uh, Aaron and Adam's book was was really great about a lot of that stuff yes and if you have people that can't accept critique about the idea without taking it personally then you have you know obviously there's a challenge there right so you might highlight that and then the CEO or whoever the you know the, the upper level stakeholder comes in and says no I hired you to be a designer not to be an HR person <laughs> right, right? they don't see the connection between the two so it's interesting that um, you know this is this is a conversation that's happening more and more and one of the things that fascinates me is Building a good design operation is really foundationally, um, uh, it's, it's a, built upon the people that you have, right? And if the people don't understand how to, how to use a good process and how to participate in that process, the product suffers. Yep. So where does, where does our responsibility as designers really lie? Is it in helping them create a culture of creating product? Or is it helping them um, push pixels around the screen and write code? Yeah, I think it's it's both sometimes, and it's either or other times. You know, some some clients hire us because they're like, we just need this thing launched, and we don't we don't need to support it, we don't need to be involved, we we just want it launched because we want to have it. Leadership. All right, cool. Like we can do that. You know, I, and to me, it's about expectations. What expectation do they have? You know, other organizations are like, well, yes, we need you to help kickstart this thing, but we have to maintain it. And so mm -hmm. if, if a culture doesn't exist to maintain it, then our work is not going to be good. You know, like they're just going to retire it in a year, you know, or six months, and then they're going to have to do it again. And they're not going to call us back. You know, honestly, if we're talking about like working with an organization to make impact, they have to value the things that we make. And if they don't value it, then we both just wasted our time, you know? Right. Um, and so, so as designers, I think that we have the skill to assess a situation understand how it could be better and then actually make the changes to make it better. I think that's the, that's the skill of a designer. Most design, you know, we, as, as trained designers, we're, ten, we're, we're trained to do that in interfaces, you know, we're trained to do that in, um, you know, on whatever posters, you know, and, uh, and things that are graphic in nature. But I think that we could easily abstract that to thinking about how a, an organization should work or how a government should work or how a city should work. You know, it's the same skill. We're just applying it in a, in a different medium or in a, in a different way. So I think that, that what we have that's a bit unfair to people who aren't designers. And this is why, you know, I haven't talked about pushing pixels very much here. Um, but I would never call myself a strategist because in that way, it doesn't hold a lot of value to a lot of people. A lot of people value designers because they're like, you can make a thing that I can't. So they already see inherent value in that. You know, I don't know how to push pixels. So come in here and uh, there's something that you bring that we don't have. And, and I try to use that opportunity that if they already recognize there's something that we can bring that they don't have, but that's unspecified, then I like to, to exercise that in all the different areas of it. Um, I, I am sensitive to, you know, sometimes we just talk and talk and talk and talk. And people are like, can, we, can you just make something? Right. So we try to find also the sweet spot there of like, we don't do discovery for six months, you know, because people just get antsy and they go, well, aren't you supposed to be making an interface? You know, aren't you supposed mm -hmm. to be making that app for us? And so I think that we try to find a good balance of let's learn and let's discover, but also let's make some stuff. And I, I also think that the process of making in itself is discovery. And so we, oftentimes we don't have a discovery phase. It's like, we're going to come in and talk to you for a while. And then very quickly, once we learn enough to start making, we're going to start making. We're not, we're, not, uh, we're not poised to learn everything up front and then we'll know everything we need to know and then we're going to start making stuff. We're not going to know everything we need to know. So right. how do we know just enough 
to start making? Like, what's the MVP of the discovery phase, you know, to actually start making something? And so we try to, you know, if that's day one, sometimes that's day one. Sometimes we go in and do a workshop and we learn a bunch of stuff and we go, you know, by the end of the day, we could make a, a screen and just see how people react to it. You know, mm -hmm. it might not be a thing that we launch or that we ship, but we, but we'll but learn it's from it. to, yeah, it's enough to learn from. And so yeah. that's what we try to find, um, you know, as, as quickly as possible. Yeah. So that's kind of, you know, whether you're following like a design sprint methodology or you're doing something else, I think the lesson is to, to move, um, to move through these iterations as rapidly as possible. Absolutely. Right? Um, I, I don't know if I told you, I'm, I'm writing a book about the, this process. Um, oh, nice. I didn't know calling, calling them loops, right? Cause we're going through these loops and loops can vary in size. They can vary in speed. They can vary in you know a number of different ways. But the idea is that we're it's never a linear path, and it's never um, this waterfall of okay, research is going to take six weeks. Right. Then we're going to stop doing research, and now we're going to push pixels. Yep. And when we're done pushing pixels, we'll write code. Like it just doesn't work that way. Or it has worked that way, but we've seen tons and tons and tons of companies and products fail by trying to use that methodology. Totally agree. So the, the concept of, of going in and asking a couple of questions enough to kind of get some direction and start going that direction and then learn from those little tiny mistakes and do course corrections along the way, uh, it seems to be a much, much more effective way of building anything, whether it's that. a product, a service, or, or a culture. I've never heard them described as loops. Uh, I, I love that. I'm going to start using that. That's great. But as the person designing the projects, my, my, one of my incentives is to fit as many loops into the project as we can, you know, in, right. in 10 months, I, if I'd rather have a hundred loops than 10 loops, you know, because yeah, we absolutely. learn that much more. And so how do we fit as many loops into the duration that we're on board for, you know, to me, that is, that's a thing that I, that's, that's a challenge for me is like, can we get one more loop in here? Can we get one more in here? So I, I really, that resonates with me. You kind of describe it that way. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. So um, can you talk a little bit about, the effects that you've seen of implementing, we talked about design systems a little bit and, and you mentioned talking to Nathan uh, and I know he's huge in that space. Can you talk a little bit about the effects that you've seen of um, implementing some standards around interface patterns, uh, design systems and those types of things and, and how that might um, have an impact on the speed at which you can actually um, iterate and develop new things? Yeah, totally. I think that there's the, there are the factors that are generally widely discussed around systems or around system design, which is like, if you have a system, you get for free consistency, um, reliability, uh, you get scale, right? So like if you've made, for example, a component that has been tested for accessibility and usability, then anyone that used that component get that stuff for free. So there's, there's certainly that there's efficiency that's kind of baked into that there's speed, you know, there's, uh, I, I love that more and more we're hearing stories of now that we have a system, we're making the same product with the team a quarter of the size, you know, or in the same amount of time we've, sh we've shipped, you know, three times as many products as we normally did without the system, you know, right. so I think that, that I love hearing more and more of those stories kind of come up. I, we've seen that in our own work. And so there's definitely all of that stuff, speed, consistency, you know, quality increase, or, or certainly not a decrease, but, but maintaining quality in a shorter amount of time um, and efficiency. One of the ones that are less widely talked about, I think that we're seeing more and more is that kind of our philosophy on, on design systems is that they should, 
they should be boring, right? They should catalog all of the boring stuff, all the stuff that you never want to do again, right? Like never make a button again, <laughs> never make a right. form again. Like why would you do that? Why would you spend your career designers making those things over and over again when you don't have to? So take, get all the boring stuff out of the way. And what that, what that does is it frees designers and developers up to work on the new, right? The unsolved problems. It, mm -hmm. Like take all the institutional knowledge and put it away somewhere so that other people can use it. And now that frees you up to go, well, actually, we've never explored that market before, right? Because we've never had time to because we were too busy rebuilding the same interface over right. and over. So now we can explore this thing. And, and so one of the qualities that I'm seeing a lot and, and kind of thinking through and talking about is I think of the design system as a relief, you know, for the people that would otherwise be mired in, you know, in just the same old. You know, and so a lot of times what we find is, and there's a certain personality type that tends to gravitate towards this, but I think that what we tend to find is that there are some designers that are like, thank you. Now I could work on, you know, like all the motion design stuff that I never was able to, or, yeah. you know, writing better documentation around the stuff that I've done or making that custom icon set that we always pushed off until the end, never got a chance to get around to. And so that's a, a lot of what we're seeing. And, and a lot of what I personally focus on when I work with teams is, how can, how can what we make be a relief to you so that you can actually go and tackle the stuff that you wanted to, that you've been wanting right. to for years that you've just never been able to get around to? So you can work on the real important things. Totally. You know? oh, yeah. And honestly, even if it's not important, the fun stuff, just the stuff that's fun for you. Like, right. let, it be, let it be frivolous. You know? That's fine. Like, I think yeah. our jobs need a little bit more of that. Well, yeah, because that's where the experimentation, the part that's fun, that's yes. where you discover new stuff. And that's where you actually, you know, that kind of leads into, into that word that everyone loves using these days, innovation, right? <laughs> that's right. Yep, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so a, a, a metaphor that um, kind of resonates with me around design systems, and I'd, I'm eager to hear your feedback around this, is you know, we, we, as designers, we have used this term design language, right? as a way of communicating things. And to me, it's like the building blocks of language. Like you and I are conversing now in English and we could switch to another language if we both knew it, but we're not gonna go into each new project and reconstruct the alphabet. Right. Right. Or reconstruct uh, you know, how you diagram a sentence and what's a verb and what's a noun and so forth, right? All of those things are already there, which enables us to communicate much more efficiently. But if we had to reconstruct a language every time we started a new project, you know, it, things would take exponentially longer just to get right. off the ground, right? So using a design system kind of gives you those fundamental building blocks of visual communication, right? And so that helps great. move faster and, and just be more efficient and more accurate. I love that. At a at Clarity Conference, which is a conference about design systems, uh, Amelie oh, yeah. Lamont uh, did a talk about the language as a, as relate or language as it relates to design systems. And she talked she talked a lot about that about like you know we we do need common language, but we also can build upon this the language that we already have. You know, yeah. like we don't need to reinvent language; we just need to know how to use it. Right. You know? And so I think that that's a that's a great thing. You know, one of the things that I'm finding on a, on one of the current projects we're working on is. Um, they have a bit of a design system already in that, or, or perhaps more correct is like a, they have more of a pattern library or component library. Mm -hmm. So they've got buttons and they've got, um, you know, forms and whatever. And one of the things that they've got is like, our buttons are purple. Uh, well, sorry, some buttons are purple and some buttons are blue. Uh, and what they don't have though, is the story of why that's the case. So right. for any designer that's implementing that, What's not part of their language is like, yeah, but where do I use, like more than just guidelines, where do I use purple buttons or blue buttons and why do I use purple buttons and blue buttons? Right. And, I, and one of the things that we're working on with them is like, 
you know, language is one thing, but a story is different. You know, using language to construct a story around that is very mm -hmm. different. And if people understood the narrative or the story, and it doesn't have to be a long one, you know, if they understand, oh, purple is the color that we use for our premium project products or something like that, right. like, because, you know, because this is a richer tone than that. Now they can inherently understand that. Now it's not just, well, what do the guidelines say about that? It's, it's not constantly referencing guidelines. It's like trying to like, trying to say every sentence by looking up every word in the dictionary before you say it, you know, like right, it's right. so monotonous, you know, so I'm just trying to extend your metaphor here. I think that what, one of the things that I try to do is even if the language exists, if the story doesn't exist too, to be able to use that language, understand how to use the language, then, then there's work to be done. Yeah, no, I love that. I think it's a, a great way to, um, to help kind of drive the point home, right? Uh, why is the button purple? Yeah. Right. Not because the guideline says it should be, but there's there's an actual narrative behind that. No, I think that's a, a beautiful way to to uh, to explain that. Um, so last thing I wanted to, to, to chat about is uh, where do you see. So the designers who are doing good work now, where do you see their efforts um, needed most as we look kind of forward and over the next um, year, two years, five years? Like, where should we be paying attention? Hmm. That's, a, that's a tough one. I've never really been good at prediction, so I'll, I'll just caveat that to say, like, <laughs> like everything that I've predicted. Well, is then like, let's rephrase it and say, what are, what are you looking forward? Like, okay. where, where is your focus going to be in the next couple of years? Yeah, I think um, the more I do design work, and specifically, like, digital design work, the more and more I think I'm doing branding. Like, and I'm not making logos and things like that, but I'm, I'm working on how people feel when they interact with the things that I make, you know, and that's what brand is. Brand is like a person's feeling about whatever it is that they're interacting with, yep. you know, whether it's a, lo a service or a logo or whatever. And so what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to make people feel something. Um, and it could be an emotion like happy or sad, but it, call it could also be just spurned to action or I need to do this thing, or I know where this thing is. I can find it now. And so more and more I'm, I'm thinking about brand and I'm thinking about, well, what do I want people to do and what do I want people to feel and think? And I think that that's the opportunity for designers, like maybe more than ever, you know, in today's society is that like, we, we have the gift, you know, maybe uniquely so maybe, maybe more than anybody, any other profession in the world, we have the gift to make people react in the way that we want them to react. How do we use that? How, you know, how, and, and more importantly, how do we use that for good? You know, how do we use right. that to, to help people, you know, pay their water bills or make more money or, you know, make good decisions, you know, or be healthier? Like, how do we, how do we do that stuff? It's the same skills that it takes to figure out what side the logo should be on. You know, it's the same decision-making process. And so right. what I'm trying to focus on and sharpen and hone for myself is like, how do I use my skills to, to create positive actions and positive behavior and positive change? And I wish, I, I want designers to do that more. So when I train designers, I, I focus on that. You know, when I, when I talk to designers, I focus on, on that kind of stuff because if, if designers just think that what they're good at is like pushing stuff around and sketch, oh man, you're selling yourself short, <laughs> you know, yeah. like that's, that's yeah, the tip yeah. of the iceberg. That's just and a so, tool. Yeah. It's just, I mean, and it's going to change, right? Because, you know, right. like sketch wasn't around seven years ago, you know, 10 years ago. Right. And so it's going to, it's going to come and go. And, and so what are the skills that you have that transcend that? And I think it's, it's the ability to make people change their minds about stuff. I think that's incredibly powerful. And, and I want to see more and more designers using that skill and specifically for good. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So is that, um, in your mind, is that kind of a jobs to be done thing? Is that the framework that, that we're using or is there is something else? Hmm, that's a, you know, that's a tough one. I, I haven't really cracked that. You know, I, I've, uh, my apprentices and I talk about that a lot when I train people to, to be designers and like professional designers. We talk about that stuff a lot. It's like, well, how do we, how do we do that? And one of the things that we've come to so far is, well, designers have to be good at decision-making. And, and, and generally they're not, you know, that like generally, like we rely on external motivations and factors like critique, like feedback, which I think are, are all good. But I think that developing a, a, a sense of your own individual principles or your group's principles, I think that helps to guide it. So I, I'm not sure. I, I think the frameworks can help. I think honestly, probably all frameworks can help to do that, but a way to be able to measure something to measure against to say, am I heading in the right direction? Let me look at something and go, yes, I am. You know, so I think jobs to be done is a, is a helpful one, you know, for a lot of organizations, OKRs are, are that, but sometimes just like mission statements and like company values tend to be that, that guiding light. And so I think having good things in place that help us make those, make those good decisions and help us to decide things faster. You know, there are things that I believe that I don't have to decide in the, on the fly, you know, because I, I believe them intrinsically and I know them, you know, um, and those are things like related to how I make decisions about my family or how I make decisions about what I eat for lunch. You know, like there are things, <laughs> things that I value and things, principles that I have. And I think if designers had that about their work, you know, more, I think that that would help, you know, I, I, I think that would help them be able to, to, to be better at decision making. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think, um, and I'm not hearing you say that every designer has to live by the same ethos. That's right. Right. So everyone can kind of choose what their principles are and what they're going to do. And as long as they're generally aligned on the positive side of things, we're not creating dark patterns, then, you know, the world would be a better place, which is that super aspirational kind of fluffy thing that you hear companies say, right? <laughs> right. But, but, but it's true. You know, and I very how do you much, make that practical? Yeah. Well, I very much believe that designers should not have the same set of principles because that would be a very myopic world and it would not represent the diversity of the world, right? It would not, it right. just wouldn't be representative. And so I, I think that, if designers can have their own individual principles, but also whatever group they belong to, right? And, and we could belong to different groups. And, and when I think about ethics, you know, I think that ethics are what's right for a given group, right? Not universal truth. It's what, what's right for a given group. And that's what makes it difficult is what's right when I work with this company is not what's right when I work with that company, not what's not right when I am by myself. And so that be, that's the tricky part of, of all of this is that is that we, we need the ability to change and morph and shift, but still have steadfast principles. So what's a good balance of, of those things where you're not too rigid, but you're also not too pliable. Right. No, that's great stuff. Well, um, I do not want to end this conversation, but I know we've both got <laughs> to do this is uh, you know, I always enjoy chatting with you. Yeah. Likewise. Thanks a lot for coming on the show. Um, somebody wants to learn more about you and what you're up to, what's the best way to get in touch? Yeah, sure. A couple of ways. So I, uh, I tweet, uh, fairly regularly at, at Dan mall. Um, my website is danmall.me, So you can get in touch that way. Um, and the agency website is superfriend.ly. So any of those ways have, uh, have mechanisms to get in touch. Awesome. Well, man, thanks again for coming on the show. Keep up the good work and uh, I'd love to uh, catch up with you again soon. Yeah. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Design Driven is brought to you by Nine Labs, guiding innovators and product teams through executing their vision. Find out how they can help improve your digital products at ninelabs.com. 
Have comments, questions, or an idea you'd like us to cover? Point your browser to designdriven.biz and click Contact Us at the top of your screen. We'd love to hear from you. Tell your friends and colleagues about the Design Driven Pod. Post on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or send them an email and tell them to go to designdriven.biz or wherever they find their podcasts. Until next time, remember what Thomas Watson, founder of IBM, said. Good design is good business.